Welcome to the podcast, Wendy Sukir from uh, Ryerson University and the Ted Browser School of Management. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we wanted to start off, um, how we all connected was through Lifeline Afghanistan. And uh, if we could, uh, because this is uh, very topical and uh, very recent, and because of your lessons learned uh, through Lifeline Syria, perhaps we can talk about the lessons learned from Lifeline Syria, and then as it relates to now Lifeline Afghanistan, helping settle the refugees that have arrived from these war-torn countries. Sure. Well, I, you know, from my point of view, uh, I'm the child of a refugee. I mean, if, if you actually dig into most Canadians' pasts, 75% of Canadians right now are either immigrants or children of immigrants, and a lot of us are the children of refugees. And I first learned about private sponsorship of refugees actually in 1979 when I was still a, a student and uh, led a, a group to sponsor a Vietnamese family and over the years watched them prosper. So in uh, 2015 when the Syrian crisis um, emerged and, and caught people's attention, the uh, Senator Ratna Ahmedbar was was working at the Diversity Institute leading the Global Diversity Exchange and um, she started an initiative called Lifeline Syria and my role was really just to support her and then we started an initiative called the Ryerson University Lifeline Syria Challenge which was very much focused on mobilizing universities, university students, their partners and so on to uh, privately sponsor um, uh, Syrian refugees. And what we learned during that, that process is certainly that a lot of the stereotypes of, of uh, refugees don't, don't apply. And while many people are motivated legitimately for humanitarian reasons to get engaged with, with refugees, it's also really clear that they make huge contributions um, economically, both in terms of, uh, you know, helping resolve the problems of the aging workforce, because people my age are, are, uh, are uh, retiring and dying, I hope to do the first before the second, but also, um, you know, there are lots of really interesting examples of Syrian refugees starting businesses in, in small communities across the country. And, and creating jobs for people. So one of the big lessons for me through that whole experience was to really reframe our discussion of immigrants and refugees and recognize that, that you know, our motivations are not just tied to a commitment to um, human rights and humanitarian causes, but rather to Canada's economic and social well-being. So that would be one thing. The second thing was the Government of Canada brought um, a total of 25,000 Syrian refugees to Canada in about 100 days. We're more than 100 days since um, uh, the fall of Afghanistan, and I think the last numbers I saw were about 7,000. One of the things they did in 2015 was because I think Minister McCallum was so laser focused on this, you didn't have an election uh, distracting people. You didn't have COVID with all of the things associated with that. Um, 
they pulled out the stops. So they changed, uh, they, they made uh, uh, being Syrian uh, uh, prima facie proof of being a refugee. They um, set up mobile support units in the locations where the refugees were to help with the processing. They overlooked some of the, the details in the application processes to get them through and, and check afterwards. I don't think they scrimped. I don't think there's any evidence that they compromised our safety in terms of you know health restrictions or, or, or security uh, restrictions, but they really pulled out the stops. They lifted the caps on the number of uh, privately sponsored refugees that um, the sponsorship agreement holders could bring in and so on and showed very clearly that when you are that single-minded, laser-focused, you have a whole-of-government approach, you can do a lot very, very quickly. And so those are the lessons we're really trying to encourage the, the current government to draw on to accelerate this process. I think the other thing, and I just, I, I'm going to share it because I'm so upset about it. Um, one of the people who works for me is uh, an international student from Afghanistan. Her, her family left Afghanistan in August, went to Pakistan. We've been looking at different mechanisms to get them to Canada. Her sister was accepted at um, George Brown College, um, put through the application for her to come as a student, just as her sister is. And today got the, got the uh, the response from uh, the government basically saying, we don't believe you will return to Afghanistan, rejected. So you have in my mind some, on the one hand, we say we want highly skilled, well-educated newcomers to help uh, fuel the economy. And on the other hand, we have a student visa process that says that you have to swear that you will return to your home country or you can't come study here which, you know, I, I think there are lots of examples of those sorts of anomalies in the policies that we really have to, to grapple with. And I think the other thing that, um, the final thing that the, the experience in 2015 showed me is that people are capable of rising to the occasion. And Canadians, partly because of our heritage, I think, and the fact we are a country of refugees and immigrants, as well as indigenous peoples, um, that the Canadians will step up and the, the effort that uh, we saw, I think it was something like 3 million Canadians were engaged one way or another in the uh, Syrian refugee resettlement process. Um, you know, private sector companies figured out how to create job opportunities. We looked at, you know, innovative approaches to uh, providing support to the sponsorship families and so on. We had thousands of volunteers and, you know, millions of dollars donated. I think the evidence is pretty clear that Canadians have done this before and they would do it again. But right now the barriers are actually the policies and the processes. And right now, as you said, that uh, 25,000 approximately Syrian refugees that were settled back in 2050 around about 
that time. And now uh, the commitment for the Canadian government uh, initially was 20,000 refugees from Afghanistan, and now the commitment is 40,000. And so after 100 days, uh, we're still only 7,000 uh, people in. Again, pandemic, uh, election, other barriers that, that have delayed things. Now, uh, you'd mentioned that Canadians have stepped up and, and really I, I'm, I'm in uh, constant dialogue with your colleague, Benita Hansridge, and talking about all the, the various great organizations that are supporting Lifeline Afghanistan. So the Canadian Tire um, organization that's providing resources, JIAS, the Jewish organization that's over a hundred years old and many others um, and here uh, the BC Muslim Association and what have you. So let's talk about that because that really heartened me and, and with a, a program we did last year where we on World Refugee Day we brought uh, leaders from Jewish, Christian, Muslim and other um, NGOs to kind of share our collective lessons learned. Um, and this was before the Afghan crisis. This was uh, uh, largely related to the Syrian refugees. So let's talk about all these organizations and companies and, and political figures and cities like City of Toronto stepping up to, to do what's required. Yeah, well, I think as you know, it goes to what I said before, which is uh, Canadians this is what Canadians do, right? And it's, I think it's, you know, often we're compared to the United States and, and people say that we're, you know, not as competitive as they are, that we're not as, um, uh, you know, we're not as innovative as they are, we're not as cutthroat as they are, um, which, you know, on some measures you might say are, are true, but the flip side of that is, we have much more um, commitment to community values. We have much more commitment. It's not perfect by any stretch. And, you know, we can talk about the problems of racism and hate crimes and microaggressions and so on. I don't want to gloss over that. But we do, as a nation, have a real commitment to multiculturalism, to diversity, to inclusion. And as I said, so many of us have personal experience. I think I think it's what Canadians do. You know, we are apart from our indigenous peoples, all of us are settlers. 75% of Canadians are either first generation or second generation newcomers. Many people like me are the children of refugees. And so I think we instinctively um, step up when when we know what we can do that will make a difference. I think the other thing is we have we have pretty strong community values and it's not so much survival of the fittest as we see perhaps south of the border. And I think that's also also a factor. Um, but you know whether we're talking like some of the some of the stories were just so inspiring where you know, as you mentioned, Canadian Tire, literally one of my researchers, Lauren McNamara, was funded by um, Jumpstart, a Canadian Tire program. She contacted her contact on a Friday. Saturday, three store managers near the airport took toys to the airport hotels. And that Tuesday, they delivered 1,500 soccer balls and and basketballs. And that wasn't after some big complicated application process. That was just one guy deciding 
um, that Canadian Tire should do something and they've continued to provide all kinds of support. We saw the same thing with Indigo and Indiclo and Paramount Foods and um, an organization called the Period Purse and it was just astonishing. You know, you ask, you got very, very quickly. And then there was the shoe story, you know, we got a call from the, the people at the airport saying, um, it's getting cold and we have, you know, three quarters of, of the people here are wearing sandals or slippers because that's what they love. And on a, on a Friday, I posted a note on, on LinkedIn saying we need 600 pairs of near, of new or nearly new shoes. On Monday, I had 600 pairs, and by the following Saturday, I had uh, about 1,800 and spent my Thanksgiving <laughs> surrounded by shoes. But that was just people from all over the place. There were people, I was getting deliveries from Walmart of brand new shoes. Somebody bought like 20 pairs of shoes and had them delivered to me. One, one woman said she was going to pick up some shoes at a, at a store on, on Young Street. I got the boxes. The shoes were $400 Italian shoes. It was, it was absolutely unbelievable, but it was so heartening because it was just to me a sign that you ask Canadians and they step up. And of course, when it comes to the private sponsorship, we have people who really want to, to, um, to help, but we don't currently have the mechanisms to do anything with the um, with the resources that are available and the timelines are very discouraging you know we're looking at three four years through the the traditional pathways for private sponsorship but but employ you know employers <laughs> one employer uh, contacted us and said we have five thousand unfilled jobs across canada please give us afghan refugees Wow, amazing. So, yeah, it's been it's been it's been really gratifying and I'm absolutely convinced that we will be very successful as a nation um, in in uh, welcoming Afghans. We just we need to remove some of the barriers that currently exist. And with yourself as a, a leader in a prominent position and 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 quite a lot of uh, accolades and, and background and, and experience. You mentioned that your family comes from refugees. And if you'd like to talk about that personal journey as it informs you today, because your list of uh, achievements and, and uh, credentials are, are voluminous and, and uh, there, there's a motivation and there's, there's something in your, in your upbringing, I'm sure that informs your work today. So if you wouldn't mind, it is a little personal. We do like to ask, how did that yeah. look? come together yeah it's i'll warn you this is this still 50 years later is really hard for me to talk about but i'll see what i can do so my father was a holocaust survivor his family except for his mother were all killed uh, during the holocaust lost all their property and so on he went to england as a refugee where he was raised by a family came to canada when he was about 18 or 19 met my mother a couple of years a couple of years later um and in those days like nobody really knew about ptsd nobody nobody really was looking at uh the mental health impacts of trauma um, whether it was you know first-hand or intergenerational trauma it's something we're much more 
sensitive to now. And so he was brilliant, but really had problems um, getting a job. And living with that as a child really shaped my views of the importance of employment, not just from the point of view of economic prosperity, but also in terms of mental health. And I never really thought about it. You know, it wasn't like I, I founded the Diversity Institute because I was thinking about my father. But as my work has sort of unfolded over the years, I, I realized that those pieces really came together. It was clearly part of the reason why I got involved in um, the private sponsorship of a Vietnamese family. You know, I was the child of an, a refugee, so it made sense to me that um, I should step up given, um, you know, the circumstances after the Second World War. And then that experience, of course, prepared me for the experience sponsoring Syrian refugees. But it wasn't really something I consciously set out to do. I think it was just I saw things differently than someone with a different lived experience would see them. I saw refugees in a different way than someone without the direct connection would see them because so often what we see of refugees are people in camps or behind barbed wire. We see that experience. We don't see the stories of success uh, once they come to Canada and, and, um, and get their education, get jobs and, and have children and so on. And the number of people you will find who are highly successful, who are the children of immigrants and refugees or themselves children are immigrants and refugees is a story that doesn't get told enough. You know, you look at the top achievers in the Toronto District School Board, they're all, um, they're all newcomers or children of newcomers. And I think that one of the things we often lose sight of is the fact that, that immigrants and refugees have made decisions, often at great personal risk, to try to start a new life somewhere else. And that's quintessentially what entrepreneurship is about or what grit is about. That experience in and of itself is a really strong predictor if you, if you take into account a lot of other factors, obviously, that we have to consider. But that is, for me, a very strong um, indicator of the potential for success, because these are people who have taken risks, who have, who have um, made choices in, in seeking a better life. And like, you can see the value beyond what some paper might say, the value of the person and their ability to contribute and to, uh, to, to be productive in society. You can see that uh, in people and in these newcomers, uh, because even I was reading uh, uh, the refugees after the Holocaust in World War II, 25% of patents were in the United States were, were, were by, by Holocaust survivors that became refugees to the US. So that contribution, you can see historically when people have to leave their homes, their countries, everything 
that they know to a new country, they want to do the best that they can to uh, contribute to that country that's provided that safe haven. And, and you can see that and with your work. Now, you wrote a book, The Innovation Nation, The Canadian Leadership from Java to Jurassic Park. And also you're the founder uh, of the Ryerson University's Diversity Institute. So there's a lot of thought there and a lot of thought of how do we take uh, people from various diverse backgrounds and give them opportunities in certain areas, especially in innovation and technology, this kind of work to put these ideas and strategies together, I'm sure it's happened over many years. So how did you start to kind of come up with these strategies and, and put these, uh, these, uh, these projects forward? Yeah, it's kind of a, again, it's a funny story. You know, I, if, I never planned my life. I really was very opportunistic. Something would come up and and I'd try it. So I was a, I had a master's degree in history and English. And I, you know, my mother was a medical secretary. My father had died when I was just before my 10th birthday. Um, so I had no career guidance. I didn't know what an engineer was until I was working with them. I thought it was, you know, someone at the back of a back of a train you wave to at the at the level crossings. And so I got a job working in the government, basically as a writer, and then a job came up as um, working in uh, a technology area and they needed someone who could translate the work of the engineers into um, concepts people could understand. And so long story short, I really started my career focused on technology adoption like how you take ideas of technology, because you don't have innovation. If you have, you can have the greatest technology in the world. You can have a, you can have a cure for COVID, but if you, or, or a vaccine for COVID, but if you don't get the vaccine in people's arms, you got nothing. Same thing is true with technology. We have all kinds of amazing technology, but if nobody uses it, you don't actually get innovation. So I started by writing about technology and then, you know, gradually developed my expertise, did a PhD, things like that. But the book Innovation Nation was really focused on understanding tech entrepreneurs. And many of them had great stories of, you know, ideas uh, that, that um, nobody else recognized at the time that now are, are commonplace. But the other thing that came out in that book was that many entrepreneurs, especially the successful ones, are outsiders. They're not, you know, if you think about um, the, the social network, the, meet, the, the movie about uh, Zuckerberg, like Zuckerberg was kind of a weird, a weird outsider. Um, he wasn't, you know, captain of the rowing team or president of his class. Those people become, you know, CEOs of banks typically. The outsiders are more likely to be successful entrepreneurs. Innovation often occurs on the periphery. So, you know, Desh Deshpande was one of the entrepreneurs, for example, we interviewed for the, for the book. And there was quite a strong relationship between the experience of being different and, and becoming a, a successful entrepreneur. We know half of the entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley our, our newcomers. So that started, you know, that was part of what was drawing my attention to the idea that differences can actually be 
um, be good. And I'd done a lot of work on, on women in technology. And my PhD thesis looked at technology adoption and the processes that come into play when you go from having a technology to its wide use. And so those ideas of diffusion and innovation with respect to technology are actually fundamental to any kind of change process. So I moved pretty quickly from just looking at technology innovation to looking at social innovation. And that's where we brought the two ideas together. The idea, you know, I always talk about how diversity fuels innovation. We know that to be true, but we can also use what we know about innovation and innovation models and how to drive systems change to create more inclusion. And that's sort of the, the, the foundation of the Diversity Institute is thinking about how to drive change at multiple levels. So it isn't just about, you know, an organization signing on to the, you know, the Black North um, Charter. And it isn't just about an organization saying we're going to hire um, Afghan refugees. It's about having integrated strategies where you tackle policy and stereotypes and assumptions at the societal level. You tackle organizational policies and practices from HR to their R&D to their service design and delivery. And you think about how to shape individual uh, attitudes and behaviors. And in my mind, we need that kind of systems thinking if we're really going to move forward on diversity and inclusion. Because anything you look at, you know, if you look at the problems of Islamophobia, what goes on in organizations is often shaped by broader societal assumptions. I mean, post 9-11, it's been a massive problem. Broadly in society, that gets translated into organizations. Um, so we need to we need to think about those those interconnections. And you know, I'm lucky because the Diversity Institute's now big enough that we're able to tackle different aspects of this, whether it's leadership or you know, we have a project looking at um, racism in the media focused on on uh, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, anti-black racism, anti-indigenous racism, and how, the media plays a role in perpetuating stereotypes. You know, we have projects looking at online hate. We have policy interventions, but then we also work with individual organizations to try to develop um, strategies to address diversity and inclusion where they are. And we do lots of training and capacity building and stuff like that. So I feel like the, all the theoretical ideas that I studied around innovation, I've had the opportunity to kind of practice um, because we have our fingers in so many pots. And with the underpinnings of the internet and uh, social media as we know it, the algorithms that had been created um, with PageRank, with Google, and to, to really um, promote the most engaged content uh, ahead of everything else. And in the Trump era and in the era where extreme content and uh, fake news, disinformation, misinformation, conspiracy theories engage more than actual, real, authentic news. So 
And a lot of these tech companies, uh, Google's motto was uh, don't be evil and inadvertently the, and then Facebook with the uh, weaponized social media used in India, in Myanmar, in, in other places where I'm sure the, the, uh, the developers and the the founders of these companies didn't have that intention that technology their technology would be used in that fashion, but technology was used to to foment genocide and and create these divisions within society that we're seeing today and and largely is being fueled by by these algorithms that are are just engaging people that uh, that. Um, uh, the monetary aspect of, uh, of of engagement that all the eyeballs and all the stickativity and all the uh, the engagement that uh, consumers are providing these platforms they can sell the requisite advertising time and and because of that model uh, we're seeing this polarization more and more because uh, these companies are bound by fiduciary responsibility to shareholders and the shareholders want an increase in the bottom line every quarter. And because of that uh, lack of diversity also within their, their management teams, their, in their shareholders, there's not much of a, an understanding of how uh, the disinformation, misinformation is harming marginalized communities that aren't necessarily represented on their board of directors or their, their list of shareholders. I know that's- Yeah, I think, I think that the work that you've been doing in this space is so important because at the end of the day, you're right. I mean, um, companies chase the money, but encouragingly, we are seeing more and more consumers who, who are committed to diversity and inclusion, applying that as a lens in terms of who they will do business with. We are seeing more and more pressure on boards around um, environmental and social and governance um, issues. And so I do think there are ways to regulate and, and one of the things, I'm very happy, I live in a country with uh, hate speech protections, may not work all the time, but, but the recognition that there are limitations on freedom of speech, I think is, is, is critical in a, in a democracy. The fact that we have, um, we do have organizations that are prepared to start to apply diversity and inclusion lens to their procurement policies and to start to really dig into who they're doing business with. You know, it may sound a bit Pollyanna-ish, but I am hopeful that there's there's going to be some progress, but I agree with you. You know, um, I would argue Hitler weaponized uh, mass media as well. And we've seen it, you know, time and time again, when we have genocides, you know, Rwanda was another example of, of misinformation being used to turn neighbors against each other. So um, I am, I won't, sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm too optimistic and some days I feel like I'm too negative, but I will say, I think we do have to recognize that technology is not neutral and that, um, you know, AI is only as intelligence as as what gets fed into it and if what is fed into it is historically biased data then you know your hr your hr algorithms are going to be hiring the same old same old people your banking risk assessment um, processes are going to be giving mortgages to some people and not to others 
Um, and that's one of the big the big problems with um, with a lot of a lot of the AI um, algorithms is they simply reflect the data that they're fed, and if the data that they're fed is biased, that's what they that's what they produce. So, uh, you know, we're there are a number of projects focused on AI for good and and so on, and we've seen some pretty hefty um, thought leaders really raise the alarm bells for exactly the reasons you have you have um, indicated that we have to be very very attentive because media is fundamental that's why they call it the fifth estate right media is fundamental to a well-functioning uh, democracy and i wouldn't you know i i really value the democratization of media I think that has certain advantages, but it clearly has disadvantages as well. If you don't have some basic standards um, for what is communicated and hold, and the ability to hold people accountable, that's the other challenge, right? Is you can have rules against hate speech, but actually making them stick uh, can sometimes be a challenge. And with the Diversity Institute and really acknowledging that there is an issue where uh, again, women, uh, BIPOC communities need to be more represented in these areas that uh, and innovation and technology is really what's changing society is the underpinning of this current and future economy. And to have more diverse voices uh, to be at the table, being part of the decision making process is crucial to to ensure social cohesion and, and and peace and safety amongst people. And I know, as you said, sometimes it's like we're optimistic and other times we're, we're very depressed about these things and and strategies on how we can encourage uh, BIPOC communities and women to be engaged in STEM and science, technology and education and how we can how we can uh, uh, kind of really make this uh, this uh, because 62% of jobs uh, currently can be automated. And so everything is going towards uh, having these type of skills in order to be um, a highly paid uh, person in society. What, what are some strategies and, and what are some of the, the, the programs that you've, you've put together to, to incentivize and bring uh, diverse groups to, to be involved in, in, in this field? So again, it's a supply and a demand issue. And so you need employers. You know, I'm, I'm really um, opposed to training people for imaginary jobs. So one of the things we've been really lucky about is, is being able to find employers who are open to new ways of, of, of doing things. So for sure, we need to continue to focus on encouraging high school completion, university graduation, you know, uh, women and other underrepresented groups, especially uh, from the black community and the indigenous community to enter engineering, computer science and so on. And we need post-secondary institutions and in fact, public schools to understand what the current barriers are and have strategies to support people in, in doing those things. And, you know, we can talk a lot about that. There's been a lot of work um, without a lot of success, I might add, 30 years of women in technology, fewer women in computer science, and only marginally more in engineering. So, you know, I think the strategies we've been using don't work, um, and we need to really uh, hold people accountable and, and use evidence to, to drive change. 
But where I'm really interested in exploring this, and you sort of said it yourself, um, you know, automation is changing a lot of jobs. One of the things that's being automated is coding. That's the secret, right? Low code, no code. And, and I learned this a few years ago when um, a friend who was um, in HR at Cognizant, a big systems integrator, came to me and said, you know, we really want to get the professors at Ryerson to teach PEGA, which is um, an application, because there's huge demand, we can't find enough people with PEGA skills, etc. And I said, yeah, okay. I'll introduce you to the deans and the directors and, you know, you can talk to them, but understand this. It takes years to get curriculum changes. Universities don't like proprietary programs and the professors don't know PEGA and they don't want to learn anything new. So I think that you're going to have some challenges getting, getting your solution implemented, but no problem. I'll introduce you to the right people. But then I said, However, we know there are lots of internationally educated, highly skilled professionals driving cab working as security guards. How about we also think about what do you really need in order to get certified as a PEGA systems developer? Like, what do you really need? They said, oh, it's a year, it's this. I said, no, no. I talked to the instructor. The instructor said, ah, full time, six weeks. You give me someone for six weeks. I can get them certified. Wow. We had the first conversation the beginning of June. We agreed to move forward the middle of June. We launched the program the beginning of July. And at the end of August, we had 18 certified PEGA developers who all were internationally educated and working in jobs that were not consistent with their, with their, um, their skill sets. So for me, that's an example of where you really challenge the assumptions about what the skills and competencies are and you think about new ways to move forward. I mean Shopify doesn't focus on credentials anymore, focuses on aptitude. Organizations like Jelly Academy and there's another one called Play-Doh have customized training and certification programs for Indigenous youth for instance um, in collaboration with employers so it doesn't matter if you didn't graduate from high school or didn't go to university. You do this work, we'll meet you where you are, and they have very, very high success rates. We have a similar program, um, the Advanced Digital and Professional Training Program, and really it came out of my own experience as a history major who ended up as a tech expert. A lot of the stuff's not that complicated. And so we designed the program really to take social sciences and humanities students through intensive training, work integrated learning, transition into employment in four months with a 90% success rate. And we've, we've morphed that, adapted that in, in a variety of different ways. But, you know, my daughter is poor child, is my guinea pig. She graduated with an undergrad in uh, English, Visual Arts and Philosophy. She was accepted at Parsons, which is an art school in New York City, to do a master's degree in painting. Not painting my house, painting pictures. Um, spending her inheritance before I was dead, basically. 
because there aren't a lot of jobs for painters. But I made her do some MBA courses. I made her do one week of a data analytics course, one week. She cried every night. Um, at the end, the engineer and the, and the PhD, who were also taking the course with her from, my, my, um, from the institute, dropped out. She finished. She was the top-rated um, uh, top student because data analytics is not about math and it's not about computers. It's about telling stories. So when we look at the underrepresentation of women in tech roles, I would argue, yes, we want more women in computer science. Yes, we want more women in, um, in engineering, but we also need to think about alternative pathways because a lot of the jobs in tech, like the no-code, low-code applications or the data analytics jobs, she now makes as much money as I do, by the way, um, working at Boston Consulting Group. So her trajectory was very different than what we might have expected. But thinking about those alternative pathways really is, in my view, the, the solution to some of these issues. Rather than trying to stuff more women into computer science and assuming that's the only solution, why don't we rethink what we really need in these technology jobs? Because coming back to where we started, the big issues with innovation are not about us not having the technologies. The big issues around innovation are not using the technologies. And I would argue that someone who is not a technologist, but knows about technology, like my daughter, like me, can actually advance the adoption of technology because we can explain to people what it's good for rather than being um, you know interested in what's what's under the hood and i think there's a massive role for people that i would call sort of bridging um, people in the tech sector i think that's where the job growth is going to be building technology of course continue to be important but people who can help organizations understand how to use technology even more valuable. And once you start redefining the roles in this way, suddenly the space for women, for black people, for indigenous people, for art students and so on opens up. So it's almost like bringing everyone's aptitude, inclination and interest and, and uh, merging it with a technical understanding, which is now becoming easier to understand, as you said, that coding is becoming uh, automated. So if 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 people can take their their natural talents, their 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 passion, and and bring that together with a technological training and understanding, then that's a powerful combination of uh, of skills um, to bring forward to any employer. And it opens up pathways because we know that we need pathways for people who haven't completed post secondary institutions. You can train them on specific things and they can be very successful. NPower is another example of a program like that that we work with. Um, you can take people who have studied what they love, philosophy, art, um, history, literature, and frankly, who have 
possibly a, a better understanding of the world and context and things that are important. And you can give them enough of the skills they need to actually um, be incredibly valuable in helping with technological transformation. If you're able to demystify technology, if you're able to get employers to think more openly, we talk about an asset-based approach where you look at what people have, not what they don't have. And I think that that's absolutely critical, not just to filling the talent gap and the labor shortages and so on, but also to happy employees, right? So rather than trying to, you know, um, stick round square pegs into round holes, why don't we think more about where the opportunities are to use the, the square pegs? Now we're kind of moving into a new phase of technology with blockchain and uh, the metaverse and uh, all of these kind of areas that, that everything is kind of moving towards. Do you see in terms of where the Institute is with, uh, uh, with, with the way technology is progressing, uh, where do you see the puck going? Where do you see from where we are oh. to, to where we're going? So funny, I'm a good historian. <laughs> I know what's happened. I'm horrible, absolutely horrible. I remember I was taken to Bell Northern Research and I was shown one of the first Apple computers, Lisa, uh, which had the GUI interface with the trash and all that. And I had been using DOS yeah. and I just went, this is <laughs> silly, this is silly. Who would ever use this? What do you mean you're gonna, drag something from here to the trash like poo i'm i'm horrible like i completely acknowledge that i'm horrible at predicting the future what i do think though is that a lot of the people who claim to predict the future are often overly optimistic about the adoption of of technology and you know you mentioned blockchain don tapscott's one of the big proponents there i worked with him on a couple of his books and i always say I'm kind of, you know, a reverse Don Tapscott. So he says something's gonna happen and I say it's not. And half the time he's right and half the time I'm right, but he makes $50,000 for every presentation and like, I don't. So it's, you know, to me, you need a healthy skeptic skepticism when it comes to technology. You need to open your mind to what the possibilities are but you also need to recognize, you know, the point I made at the beginning, which is having the technology is not the same as using the technology. And so I've become a big proponent, um, less about planning and more about forecasting and foresight and having different scenarios. So if this happens, if blockchain transforms the world in the next few years, what are the implications for the economy, for business, for skills, for whatever? So have that thought through, but then also have a, another pathway thought through where blockchain's not going to take hold for another 10 years. And so what, what are the implications there? And if we want to accelerate it, what do we need to do? So thinking less about the future as fixed, because we've certainly seen this with AI, you know, the, um, 
the you you reference the uh, Osborne and Frey saying 62% of, of jobs could be automated. The fact that 62% of jobs could be automated doesn't mean they will be automated. And so trying to figure out what might happen and how we will be prepared for that or what might not happen and how we will be prepared for that seems to me to be a more sensible approach in an environment where it's really, really hard to predict. Like while everyone was waiting for the robots to come and eat our jobs, COVID hit. And very few people, there were some, but very few people had really projected what the impacts of a global pandemic would look like. And certainly no one in my circles was talking about that, you know, I was in a foresight planning session and people were talking about aliens landing, but they weren't talking about the pandemic. So people were thinking, you know, aliens coming to Earth was more likely than um, than complete disruption because of a disease. So so I think we have I think one of the lessons of the pandemic is adaptability, flexibility and um, resilience are absolutely critical in individuals in organizations and frankly in institutions and we've been pretty lucky in canada i think you know everybody is an armchair critic um, but i think for the most part we've we've come out relatively well compared to a lot of other places um, but nobody nobody had the plans in place it was it was more that we were able to adapt quite quickly. You know, the universities, the hospital, the government, businesses and so on. And so that's where I'd be putting my focus rather than trying to anticipate, you know, how many of these jobs will there be? Or, um, you know, what are the products and services gonna look like? We can, we can, we can speculate and we can think about them but really what we want to do, I think, is make sure that we have contingency plans for the contingency plans for the contingency plans. And, and even with with all these, you know, as you said, contingency, contingency plans to contingency plans, and this last 2021, there's more venture capital that has gone into new ventures. And with the knowledge that 80, 90, even 95% of these these bets are going to fail, but that 5% or 2% are going to be so big. So now we're economy wise, like even in spite of the pandemic, the stock markets are, 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 are roaring. Uh, Apple, we, we talked about is a $3 trillion company. So these are, these are, I guess you should have loaded up on Apple back in Lisa days, but <laughs> but, but, but I digress, like the, the, the amount of money that is out there for venture capitals to invest in entrepreneurs and a lot of entrepreneurs like Elon Musk being an immigrant from South Africa, uh, Steve Jobs being a son of a, uh, a refugee from, from Syria and, and many others uh, that, that are first generation or, or immigrants that came on certain visas to come to Canada and the United States to, to really build a new life. So there's a lot of money to bet on entrepreneurs. Now, just in, in wrapping up our conversation, the Institute uh, and Ryerson and the Ted Rogers School of Management, what are some strategies for those entrepreneurs that not just 
getting a high paying job, but to go down this road of entrepreneurship to, to really take some ideas and, and really uh, put the pedal to the metal and, and, and try and make the next unicorn. What would be your, your advice and, and what would be some potential uh, paths that you would recommend uh, based on what you've seen in your experience? So it's really interesting because entrepreneurs are definitely cut from a different cloth and have different, you know, successful entrepreneurs have to have a high level of internal motivation as opposed to seeking approval. They have to be sort of single-minded in a certain way. They have to tolerate risk. They have to be resilient, like you have to be prepared to get slapped down. So there are definitely characteristics and skills and attitudes that you have to try to develop. And it's it's challenging, uh, especially, you know, we work with women entrepreneurs. There's lots of stuff that um, where they face barriers, where, where some newcomers are really advantaged as entrepreneurs, but others face bias, stereotypes, and so on. So we have to recognize they're all not stopping, starting in the same in the same place. But, you know, to me, there are no magic solutions. You need a business plan. And the thing that for me is always a challenge, especially when you're dealing with engineers who can make something cool, is who is gonna buy this and how are you going to get money? And that's kind of, if you wanna be an entrepreneur, you have to be able to answer that question and really focusing your mind on markets and, you know, even if they're potential markets, but, but that's where I see a big gap. When we're dealing with newcomer entrepreneurs, often it's the social capital, figuring out how to navigate and so on. So networking, you know, it really is who you know, not what you know. LinkedIn is your friend, you know, you need to you need to understand the processes of networking and how to connect with people authentically, but you need to build your networks. You need to be prepared to ask for advice. Um, you know, it, one of the one of the guys we interviewed in the book talked about ego under control. You need a very strong sense of yourself because you're going to get beat down. People are going to say no. People are going to say your ideas are dumb. So you really have to be have enough ego to keep going, but you have to have enough control to listen to people who may tell you things you don't want to hear. And, and it's, it's that balance that I think you find in, in successful entrepreneurs. But there's no question that people who are on the margins, people with different cognitive, um, uh, cognitive styles, you know, Forbes called ADHD the entrepreneur's superpower because often people who don't succeed in very structured conventional environments excel when you put them in an entrepreneurial environment. We're looking at entrepreneurship training um, as a pathway for at-risk youth because you can still teach them reading, writing, math, all that stuff, but giving them a project they can call their own to build is, is a different way than sitting them in a classroom and talking at them all day. So I do think that fundamentally entrepreneurs need a, a strong sense of self. They need, they need networks. They need the discipline of a business plan and to know who's going to pay for, um, for what it is they're selling. And we need a supportive environment. I mean, the government is doing a lot, but there are things that could be improved 
to provide more support for diverse entrepreneurs in, in particular, because a lot of the systems were designed for people in the system. And even the strong association between entrepreneurship and technology, I think we have to question, because there are entrepreneurs in agriculture. There are entrepreneurs making new hot sauces and cookies. There are entrepreneurs like Kylie Jenner, new goop, you know, that she's selling on Shopify. And in my mind, one of the, one of the most restrictive uh, things that entrepreneurs face are often the stereotypes about what an entrepreneur is. And you don't have to be Steve Jobs or, or Bill Gates. You could be Kylie Jenner, Oprah Winfrey, or uh, Celine Dion, who's, you know, worth $800 million or something. So, so again, coming back to that multi-layered approach, we look at individuals, we look at organizations, we look at how banks operate and, you know, want to make some um, changes in terms of how they think about risk. And you have to look at policies. And, and I think that brings us to where we started our conversation about refugees and newcomers and the resilience and the fortitude and people that have come from uh, difficult circumstances. They understand that, okay, I know is, is not the worst thing in the world. Sometimes those of us born and raised in Canada, you know, get the feelings hurt or the rejection or whatever the case may be. Whereas folks that have really seen hardcore things that that I know is not going to face them. And, and so I think in wrapping up, I really thank you for for taking your time out. I know you're very busy uh, with your schedule. And we, uh, we really appreciate it. And we will be uh, promoting our, uh, our podcast through the various social media platforms that that we're on. And uh, thank you so much for the great work that you do and looking forward to working with you in, in the future. Thanks for the great conversation and all that you do really appreciate it.